This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycincy.org. Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Revelation, chapter 21, verses 1 through 4. You can find it on page 1041 in the Bibles in your rows if you'd like to follow along as I read. Revelation 21, 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm really glad that you could Uh, be here to worship with us this morning. Uh, We've been in a series uh, we've been calling The Weary World Rejoices, which is a borrowed line from the Christmas carol we just sang uh, from O Holy Night, uh, The Thrill of Hope, The Weary World Rejoices. And we've also been talking about the line from C.S. Lewis where he says that Jesus came down to come up again and to bring the whole ruined world up with him. That's what we've been talking about over these last few weeks during the Advent series. We took two Old Testament texts, two New Testament texts, and we're trying to show that Jesus' mission is one mission all the way through, from the crib to the cross, and even beyond to the resurrection and the ascension. Jesus Christ came into the world to renew and restore it. And now we wait for his return when he'll make all things new. His return, his coming That's the meaning of the word Advent. And so with this on your mind, I wonder if it's easier to spot some of these second coming references, these second Advent references in our Christmas carols. I'm saying some of them just a moment ago, but probably the the best example of this is uh, from Joy to the World, which really is all about the second coming of Christ. The culmination verse is, No more let sin and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. My favorite of them all is in Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, where it says, Finish then thy new creation, pure and spotless let us be. Let us see thy great salvation perfectly restored in thee, changed from glory into glory, till in heaven we take our place, till we cast our crowns before thee, lost in wonder, love, and praise. So we've been taking a look at some biblical passages which give us a sense of the shape of the kingdom of God. It's broken into the world with Jesus and his first coming at Christmas, but it's going to come in its fullness when Christ comes again. There's a, a story about uh, a BBC researcher who is uh, producing a religious program around the holidays. And uh, this researcher sent a question to the Church of England Information Office. And the question was this, how might I ascertain the official church view of heaven and hell? To which he received a memo in reply 
from the Church of England office, well, you can die, (laughs) which is a little snarky uh, in response, and also perhaps a bit too late, by the way, right? We need help now in thinking about those things and understanding these ultimate realities. And in Revelation chapter 21, which was just read to us, we get a glimpse of that. John gives us a sense of that, the kingdom of heaven. And that's helpful for us as we prepare for eternity so that we can make sure that our hearts are are ready to meet God so that we can enter into his kingdom. But it's also helpful for us in understanding how it is we are to live now in the present world while we wait for this world to come. St. John wrote the book of Revelation to a people who were suffering under intense persecution. He was writing so that they would have comfort and joy and hope in the midst of it, in the weary world that is there waiting for the next world. One pastor says in commenting on this passage, you think you have problems at work, you think you're thrown to the lions. Well, at least your lions are figurative. The people that John was writing to had real lions to deal with in their persecution. They were thrown to the lines, all kinds of other persecutions. And for Christians in some parts of the world today, that's not just a memory, but a very present reality. Pastor Ryan, just this last week, went to go and record a series of podcasts telling the story of some Christians in China suffering persecution and imprisonment. And we know that there are stories like that for Christians all around the world. But even in this room right now, there is real suffering disappointments and broken dreams and broken hearts. You're not facing literal lions, but maybe you're exhausted and you're weary and you're thinking, my marriage is so bad. I don't think I can go on much longer. Where am I going to get the strength? Or I don't think I can get out of bed and go to that job that I just hate so much one more day. Maybe it's the weariness of the injustice in the world or the injustice you see in our own city or the darkness in your own heart. Or maybe it's just some days you think, I just can't take the loneliness anymore. How can I keep going with the chronic pain and the sickness that I experience? Where can I get strength for today? And the Apostle John would tell us, strength for today comes in the hope of a glorious future. Look, you can try other things. Life hacks from that new podcast you just discovered. You can change the way that you eat or the way that you sleep. You can buy yourself a new phone. You can switch jobs or cities or marriages or churches. And you might escape the pain, at least for a few moments. But to sustain you, you need a much bigger vision. You need a much grander hope. A new heavens and a new earth with a new order coming. That's our Advent hope. Christ came at Christmas to inaugurate this, but he will come again to bring it in all of its fullness. And Frederick Nietzsche, who said a lot of wrong things, but this he he was dead on when he said, he who has a why to live for can deal with almost any how. He who has a why to live for can deal with almost anyhow. And so with that in mind, I want to look at these four verses in Revelation chapter 21 that were just read to us, and each verse tells us something about the future. So first, John says, there'll be a new creation. Verse one, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. A new heaven and a new earth. There's a couple of different Greek words that often get translated as new in the Bible, in the the Greek New Testament. 
And the one that John uses here is the word kainos, and it means new in the sense of quality, new in the sense of renewal, new in the sense of transformation, not new in the sense of an exchange or trading something out. And let me see if I can illustrate the difference for a second. Um, if I said, uh, okay, my, my clothes are terrible, I look like a weirdo stuck in, you know, trends from 20 years ago, you would say in response to me, hang on to the clothes for 10 more years and they'll be back in style again, right? No, you would say probably something like, you need to get new clothes, right? Get new clothes, right? Get rid of the old ones, buy some new ones. And in that sense, right, new clothes are an exchange. And we're using the term new there, right? Out with the old, in with the new. But that's not what John means here when he uses the word kainos. Rather, it's something more like transformation. It's, it's like we would use the term when we talk about the caterpillar went into the cocoon and out came a new being, a butterfly, right? There is a sense in which that is a new being, but we also know there's continuity too, right? That being that went into the cocoon comes out of the cocoon, but transformed. The tadpole passes away. And the frog emerges, right? New in the sense of transformation. The Apostle Paul uses the same words to describe us when Christ comes into our life. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. New in the sense of total transformation. Revelation chapter 21 is describing this, the transformation of the world. God will not abandon the work of his hands, but rather he's going to come and renew it. The last few chapters of Revelation, which are the last few chapters of the Bible, sound very much like the first few chapters of the Bible, the book of Genesis. And that's on purpose because Revelation is describing a restoration of those original intentions and purposes that God had for the world at the beginning. In the early chapters of Genesis, you have the creation of the heavens and the earth. In Revelation, we see the creation of a new heaven and a new earth. In the Garden of Eden, in Genesis, there's a river and a tree of life. In Revelation, we read about the New Jerusalem, and it tells us there's a garden in the middle of the city, and there's a river, and on the banks of the river is the tree of life. Genesis 3 tells the story of sin and death and the curse. Revelation 20, 21, and 22 tells us about the defeat of sin, the redemption of man, the defeat of death, and the rolling back of the curse. You see what's happening? John is telling us the story of God's rehabbing the world, the undoing of all that's gone wrong because of sin and the curse. And what this means is, when you think about the kingdom of God, don't think about disembodied souls floating around on clouds. Instead, the Bible tells us that the future will be a physical world, which you will inhabit with a physical body. The Apostles' Creed in 1 Corinthians 15 remind us that one of the core convictions of the Christian faith is the resurrection of the body. The kingdom of heaven will not be a shadow world. In fact, this world is a shadow in comparison to what will be. Now, before we move on, what about that phrase there at the end of verse 1? And the sea was no more. Maybe you're like me when you read that and you're thinking, whoa, wait a minute. I like the sea, right? That's where all my best vacation memories are. It's going to be no beach in the kingdom of God. 
But we have to understand, and most commentators, I think, will point this out. The sea here is a stand-in, is a symbol for the terrors of nature, the chaos that exists in the world. You see, in the ancient world, the sea was a dangerous reality, a chaotic uh, reality. It could be terrifying, a source of all kinds of danger and destruction. Just read any of those old ancient mariner tales and you'll see that, right? In fact, just read through the Bible and read the stories about Jesus and the disciples in the midst of the storm and the chaos that is uh, conveyed upon them because of that. The sea also represented, in addition to the terrors of nature, it also represented separation, right? The separation of people from one another. It was a tremendous obstacle to freedom and to connection. Think about where John is writing this uh, from. Revelation, the book of Revelation is written when John is in exile on a small little island called Patmos, separated from all those that he cares about, separated, isolated by the sea. John is writing about the new heavens and the new earth as a physical reality for resurrected bodies, but in a world without the terrors of nature, without chaos and disorder that we experience. He's writing about a world renewed, a world transformed. Verse 1 speaks about a new creation. Verse 2 talks about a new community. And I saw the holy city a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. A few of you might remember this. Uh, only a few would have been around at that time. But October 18th, 2009 was our first worship service as a church. And this was our text, Revelation chapter 21. And I think I chose it because this is where we get our church name, New City, from texts like this one. It's also where St. Augustine got the title for his very famous book, The City of God. The City of God was written in response to the fall of the Roman Empire. And some people were happy about this, the Roman Empire falling. Even after Christianity had made its way through uh, the Roman Empire and began to spread and eventually even became the, the official religion of the Roman Empire, there was still a lot of paganism there. There were still a lot of wrongs and injustices that were there. And so some Christians were happy when Rome fell because it represented a toppling of idols. Now others, and other Christians even, were deeply distressed by this. This was their civilization. And a great one at that, and the fall of Rome came with it a lot of suffering and a lot of disorientation, a lot of difficulty, a lot of travail. And so Augustine writes the city of God to, to lend some theological perspective to what was happening in the day. And he actually does not, through the course of the book, does not answer the question, was it good or bad that Rome crumbled? It was too simplistic, that kind of binary yes or no, was it good or bad for him? In fact, actually, at one point, Augustine says, it's kind of even the wrong question. Is it good or bad? Because Augustine says our hope is not in any human city, though we wish to bless all human cities. But our hope is not in any human city. Our hope instead is in the city of God, the new city, the new Jerusalem. And in the meantime, then, the church is meant to represent that new city in every human city in which it's found, within every city of man. John says again, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It's our hope. Prepared as a bride, 
adorned for her husband. Now, John is mixing metaphors here, isn't he? It's a city coming down. It's also a bride waiting for her husband. Now, the city image we've already talked about. The new world Jesus brings will be one of vitality. It will be one of life. It will be full of people. It will be the community of the redeemed. The Bible says the creation began with a garden, but the new creation will have a city at its center. And it can be hard to imagine that for us because cities in our world tend to be places where there are all kinds of problems. But at their best, even in our world, think of the value that cities can bring. Security, resources, activity, companionship. Cities can be places of great beauty, places of great interest, sights and smells and art and architecture because of all the kinds of people that are drawn there, people from every tribe and tongue and nation. That's what John has in mind. And then the image of the bride and the bridegroom. All throughout the New Testament, the bride is the church, God's redeemed people. Jew and Gentile who have trusted in Christ as their savior. That's the bride of Christ. And who is the husband? Who is the bridegroom? Well, God himself is the bridegroom of Israel in the Old Testament. And Jesus refers to himself as the bridegroom in his parables about the end of the world, especially in Matthew chapter 25, which was the inspiration for the main dominant image for Christina Rossetti's great poem called Advent Sunday. I'll just read you a little bit of it. She says, Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go ye out with lighted lamps and garlands round about, to meet him in a rapture with a shout. It may be at midnight black as pitch. Earth shall cast up her poor, cast up her rich. It may be the crowing of the cock. Earth shall upheave her depth, uproot her rock. For lo, the bridegroom fetcheth home the bride. His hands are hands she knows, she knows his side. Like pure Rebecca at the appointed place, veiled she unveils her face to meet his face. And it goes on. John's vision is that, behold, the bridegroom cometh, right? The bride, the church, the people of God waiting for her husband to return and also waiting for the new city that will come down with him. The kingdom of heaven is a place where we will be together, believers from all over the world, throughout all of history, gathered together, the company of the redeemed. We're meant to think of the most deeply satisfying experiences of community and relationship that you've ever had here on this earth and know that it'll be perfected and expanded in the new creation because we'll be delivered from all the things that spoil that community and relational life in this world. We'll be delivered from our sins and our prides and our prejudices. We'll know and be known. We'll love and be loved. New creation. New community. Verse 3, we learn there's a new relationship to God. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Do you know what the very best thing about the new creation will be? God will be there. It's the very best thing about the new world, the presence of the living God. In fact, one way to read the story of the Bible is to read it through the lens of God's persistent presence with his people, even when they run away from him. 
Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve sin in the garden, they hide from God. They run from God. And immediately God seeks them out. He chases them. He calls out to them. Later, he calls to Abraham, calls him out from the nations and makes a covenant with them and his descendants. He says, I'll be your God and you'll be my people. God comes to his people. He does not abandon them when they're in slavery in Egypt. He hears their cries and he comes to them. He guides them through the wilderness. He guides them to the promised land. He dwells with them in the tabernacle and eventually in the temple. He speaks to them through the prophets. But at Christmas, in a more profound way, the presence of God comes into the world. He takes on flesh and he walks among us. Jesus is called Emmanuel, God with us. And when we trust in Jesus, the Holy Spirit is given as a pledge of God's presence with us. John has pointed us to that time when all of that will come to fulfillment in the kingdom of God. Verse 3, the voice speaks from the throne room of God. All the promises fulfilled in the new kingdom. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. No need for a temple in that place because God will fill it up. No need for sun in that place because God's glory will illuminate it all. The best part of the new creation is that God will be there. Now, if you read on a little bit past where we read earlier this morning in Revelation 21, you'll come to a part of the text that's pretty hard uh, to read, I think. I'll just read to you a couple of verses. Revelation 21, starting with verse 7. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. In other words, John is telling us a hard reality. Not everyone will be in this new city. And he gives us a list of sins there in verse 8. Now, I think it's safe to say this is, to some extent, an arbitrary list, not an exhaustive list. There are other lists of sins and rebellion against God in the Bible. So I don't think this is meant to be exhaustive, nor do I even think it's meant to be the worst sins, per se. But they are common ones. And they are things that any of us can be tempted to hold on to rather than holding on to God. And if the main feature of the kingdom of heaven is that God is there, and if there are things that we cling to that keep us from God, that if we cling to those things, they will also keep us away from his kingdom, which is a sobering thought. So who then can get in? Who are the conquerors of verse 7? Are they just the most moral, right? The opposites of these things, the people who stack up the most sort of good karma? Are they the most upright people? Is that how you get to heaven? Those who have the most uh, sort of uh, positive marks in their account? 
And then what if you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking, but I've sinned, I know I've sinned. What if one of those words that we just read in verse 8 has been descriptive of you at least at one point in your life? Well, let's back up and look at verse 6 for one second. Jesus says, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end to the thirsty. I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. How do we get into this new world? It's not the most moral. It's not the most upright. Although we are to be conformed to the righteousness of God. But we can't work for that. Christmas reminds us that Jesus Christ came into the world after all to save sinners, right? So how do we get in? We get in by being thirsty, thirsty for the righteousness of God, thirsty for the kingdom of heaven, thirsty for forgiveness, for mercy, for the grace of God, a thirst that leads us to run to Jesus Christ as our Savior, not clinging to our sin, but clinging instead to Jesus, our Messiah and Savior. The thirsty then, he says, will drink from the spring of the water of life without payment. It'll be a new creation, a new community. A new relationship to God through the work of Jesus Christ. And then finally, a new liberation. Verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Now remember, John is writing to a suffering people, and this is meant to be tidings of comfort and joy. In the new world, he says, there will be no more death, no more mourning or crying or pain. The old order of things has passed away. The curse will be undone and its devastating effects upon us will be no more. I won't say too much more about this because we've talked about it at length over the last couple of weeks. But I'll, I'll just give you one example of a person who has found hope in these words who's found strength to live amidst the pain and the disappointment that exists in this weary world. Joni Erickson Tata uh, was paralyzed in a diving accident in 1967. And here's what she writes about the new creation in an essay called Why Heaven is Worth the Wait. She writes, I can still hardly believe that I, with atrophied muscles, shriveled bent fingers and no feeling from the shoulders down, will one day have a new dazzling body that's in wonderful working order and clothed in righteousness. Not to mention, I'll also have a new mind that doesn't want to resign or quit. That's right. The spinal cord injury that I have lived with since I dived into shallow water in 1967 will no longer keep me back from the pleasures I have missed out on for so long. Horseback riding, plucking guitar strings with my fingers, or simply throwing back the covers in the morning and hopping out of bed. Can you imagine the hope that heaven gives to someone who is disabled, whether by cerebral palsy, brain injury, or manic depression? No other religion or philosophy promises glorified bodies, hearts, and minds. Only in the gospel of Jesus Christ do hurting people find such credible hope. And you may not be paralyzed with a broken back. But you may be paralyzed by other things in this life. Broken heart, broken home, broken reputation, broken health. Troubles that may seem to be slamming the door to happiness for you in this life. But John says there is another world coming. 
He gives us a glimpse of ultimate reality. And when we see it, it can give us strength for today as we wait. That's what Advent is about. It's about waiting and hoping and longing for Emmanuel, for God to be with us. I'll just close by mentioning Augustine's uh, The City of God one more time. Here's how he wraps up the book. Here's how he brings it all together at the end. He writes, In heaven we shall rest and we shall see. We shall see and we shall love. We shall love and we shall praise. And behold, what we shall be in the end shall never end. May God make each one of us people who are thirsty for the new creation, thirsty for the new community, thirsty for a new relationship with God, thirsty for that new liberation. And may he bless us as we watch and wait and pray. Would you pray with me now? We'll come to the Lord's Supper in a moment. Lord, as we consider your kingdom, that place that C.S. Lewis described as the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have not yet visited. Would you make us thirsty for it? Would you help us to wait and to watch and to pray? And would you help us to give thanks as we celebrate Christ's first coming into this world at Christmas and help us to cry out, come again, Lord Jesus. We long for a world made new. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Visit our website at newcitycincy.org for more sermons and resources. That's newcitycincy.org. Thanks for joining us today, and God bless you.